Last week on Uncommon Law, how should we evaluate law from progress to become more inclusive in the post-George Floyd era? Definitely. The sacrifice of George Floyd's life has allowed us to have conversations that we were not having before. Seeing how people were genuinely moved by the George Floyd tape, it started to push me in the direction of sharing my personal experiences. But we also took a step back to look at some of the early experiences of African-American attorneys working at large corporate firms. Uh, Our desire was to go where they did not want us to go. Our feeling was if we did not challenge this belief, it might never change. You begin to see lots of graduates of the law school who then have more opportunities opened up to them in government and also in corporate law firms. This is true affirmative action, meaning he found me, he called me up, but if he hadn't reached out, it never would have. You're listening to Uncommon Law, a podcast from the Bloomberg Industry Group. My name's Adam Allington. Last week on the show, you heard from attorneys talking about how the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery affected them personally as black attorneys working at big law firms. And while this is far from the first time the nation's been divided over social issues or police brutality, many of the people we spoke with said something about how this moment feels different. Unfortunately, despite some initial gains, the percentage of African Americans working at elite law firms has remained largely flat, even backsliding some since the 2008 recession. According to a 2019 study from the National Association for Law Placement, African Americans account for just 5% of attorneys at firms larger than 100 people, and about 2% of partners. And this comes despite years of statements and diversity trainings, mentorship programs and plans and targets. Firms say they recognize that this is a problem and that they want to fix it. But what steps are they taking and why haven't the programs they've put in place been more effective? Joining me to help guide us through some of these big, important questions is my colleague, Megan Tribe. Megan covers the business of law and large law firms. Megan, how are you? I'm good. It's nice to talk to you. Megan, you've been reporting on these top grossing firms for about five years, so you have some insight into this world. But before we do that, could you just give us a sense of what do we mean when we refer to big law? What exactly do these firms look like? What have they looked like historically? And what would you say sets them apart from how they're run and the kind of work they do? So Big Law is the nickname that's given to the largest, most profitable law firms in the world. They typically have headquarters in major cities like New York, Chicago, L.A., or Washington. Um, Some firms have hundreds of lawyers, others have thousands. They tend to be among the highest paid attorneys in the industry. Even first-year associates can start close to $200,000 a year, while partners regularly make millions. Holy smokes, that's some real money. And as you might expect, along with those high salaries, their fees also tend to be really big. Some partners, you know, charge upwards of $1,500 an hour. And we're also starting to see associate fees go as high as $1,000 as well. So this is a bit of a generalization, but these firms tend to represent many of your biggest corporations, whether it's financial institutions like Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, KKR, all the way over to your public companies and startups like Lyft and Uber. 
they typically represent them in all areas of the law, whether it's, you know, litigation, mergers and acquisitions, bankruptcies and restructuring. Okay, so to bring us back around to our topic, I think the reason why places like Bloomberg Law and others are looking at how big law is responding to the current moment is because is because we're all kind of wondering what happens next. Do all of the public statements and talk of improving diversity metrics mean firms are actually planning to do things differently? Or is all this just a kind of general signaling of support without much change on the ground? And I think the place to start looking around for answers to some of these questions um, is looking at the firm's biggest clients, right? Something you often hear about in the legal profession is that if you want to change law firms tomorrow, you have to change clients today. We've shifted to an environment now where the the downside, the penalty, the pain of, of, of not recognizing things is bigger than the upside of being safe or silent. This is Kim Rivera, general counsel of HP, which made news back in 2017 for announcing that it may withhold up to 10% of invoiced fees for failure to meet certain diversity standards. Prior to the death of George Floyd and others, Rivera said most of the conversations she's had around diversity in the legal profession have focused on how do we give attorneys of color the right skills or mentoring so that they can overcome the odds that are stacked against them. Going forward, she says, some of those conversations need to evolve so they stop putting the burden of success back onto the attorneys of color. Suddenly, the conversation has opened up now to what does everybody else have to do? And what does that mean? What do you have to recognize and do? And how do you make change that isn't just about, you know, giving minority lawyers some tools, but about actually giving them power. We'll come back to in-house counsel later to talk about what giving attorneys of color more power might actually look like. But before we do, I think we first need to discuss some of the institutional systems that actually put black and brown attorneys at a disadvantage compared to their white colleagues and why addressing those inequalities can't be fixed through recruitment alone. Oh my God, I'm so glad you brought that up because it gets at one of the central questions I have about Big Law's diversity problem. I mean, there's something like 200 ABA-approved law schools in this country, so why can't firms just go out and hire more black lawyers? Yeah, it's not that easy at all, especially when you consider where these elite firms are recruiting new talent. As a general rule of thumb, I'd say most firms in the AMLA 100 are recruiting at the top 20, top 10, and even in some cases, the top three ranked law schools. So Harvard, Yale, and what? Columbia? All of the above. And then there's Stanford, and then, you know, throw in the University of Chicago, NYU, and a few others. I see. So that's already a pretty limited pool of talent these firms are fishing from. Exactly. But if you look more broadly, there's also data to suggest that the real problem firms are grappling with may not be one of supply. According to data from the National Bar Association, the number of Black law students has actually increased from 25% to 31% since 2011. The recruitment process is not the real problem. It's the retention process, right? Like the, the, that, any, that firms need to spend more time you know, thinking about how they, not just how they get in Rainbow Coalition of Faces, but how they keep them. 
Elie Mistal is the justice correspondent for The Nation, and for the decade prior, he was an editor with Above the Law, a popular website reporting on legal issues, law schools, and firms. But even before he became a journalist, Ellie was a highly recruited graduate of both Harvard College and Harvard Law School when he was hired to become a litigator at New York's Debevoise and Plimpton. No matter what school you went to, Mistel says an all too common experience for black lawyers is that once they're hired, they don't have access to the same mentorship or networking opportunities with partners as their white colleagues, which then leads to fewer assignments, which then makes it harder to develop a book of business, which in big law is really what it's all about. What you have is a lot of firms who will invest quite heavily in trying to get diverse rainbow coalition people into their walls um, and then not develop that talent at all, right? Not invest in that talent, not develop that talent, uh, and therefore not retain that talent which it should be the whole goal, right? So basically, Mistal says, Big Law will recruit you, but they won't train you or mentor you. Or maybe they do train you, but then they won't promote you. Or maybe they promote you, but they won't pay you. At every step on the path from summer associate to big law partner, Mistal says there are just so many opportunities for bias to get into the system. Bias which ultimately drives black attorneys away and costs the firm money. I think it is implicit and in many cases explicit bias because the money-making strategy is to have a more diverse group. Right? Like that's the, the thing that always gets me about racism is how much money white people are willing to give up to prop it up. Right? Like it, it, it would make them more money to have a more diverse legal team that could talk to a more diverse set of clients. It makes them it makes for better legal decisions when you have a more intellectually diverse legal team sitting in around the room making decisions on how to argue cases or how to get deals done right it just it just it like diversity is a goal in and of itself because it literally makes things better to be clear the first few years of working as a junior associate at a corporate law firm are extremely challenging for everyone you know it's an attrition model designed to weed people out But the thing I keep coming back to here, Megan, is why would firms want to weed out the very people they say they need more of? Well, that's a tough question to answer definitively. But I think there are a number of things going on behind the scenes that help explain why Black attorneys are at a disadvantage. For instance, after they're hired, junior attorneys enter into this kind of apprenticeship phase. During this time, they're really dependent on senior associates or partners to assign them work put them on client teams or otherwise, you know, show them the ropes of how to be successful at the firm. And because of the way implicit bias works, white attorneys tend to feel more comfortable working with people who look like them or have a shared experience, for instance, like going to the same law school. Okay, so if I understand you correctly, when it comes time to decide which attorneys to promote, on paper, it can look like these white lawyers are really overachieving, when in reality, they've just been given more opportunities. I think that's right, because under the current system, it's really easy for people to just kind of fall off the radar. You know, they show up, work hard, but then they get to their fourth or fifth year and maybe they haven't taken a deposition yet or they don't have as much experience with a particular client. 
And then people just say, well, that person isn't a rainmaker. The fact of the matter is, you have to find out the unwritten rules of the game very quickly before you break them, right? Warren Allen is a founding member of WTA2, a small boutique law firm based in Arlington, Virginia. But before he went out on his own, he spent 12 years at Skadden Arps, an elite big law firm, where he eventually rose to the level of counsel. While he doesn't think that racism is the driving force in the hearts of most senior partners, there have also been studies proving that attorneys of color tend to be evaluated more strictly than their white colleagues. There is that reality. And so I think you got to figure out how a lot of that works. And the only way you're going to figure out how that works is people that know the inside baseball care enough about you to tell you. If you are a older white law firm partner, you might be concerned about potentially saying the wrong thing to an attorney of color. And so maybe you're a little bit more shy about putting yourself out there. Conversely, attorneys of color may feel intimidated by, you know, dealing with uh people from, from different groups than than they're in. And so they may not reach out. And this sort of mutual fear of reaching out back and forth, I, I think it can constrain opportunities to build the kind of relationships that you need. And on top of this issue of uneven access to mentorship or training, there's also a question of feeling isolated from the corporate culture around you. That's something that many of the people we spoke to for this podcast said they felt at some point in their careers. That for black and brown attorneys, the pressure to change who you are to fit into a white Eurocentric culture can sometimes feel exhausting. I just remember feeling just like I was different from everyone else. I didn't really fit in. I'm not an extrovert. And so those social interactions did not come easily to me. And it was hard to find things in common with my colleagues um, in those first couple of years. That's Kanika Young. She's a senior director of health policy and advocacy at the Tennessee Justice Center. But before that, she represented hospitals and healthcare providers as a litigator for Bass, Barry & Sims, a regional Tennessee-based firm with more than 150 attorneys at the time. As an undergrad at Florida A&M, a historically black college and university, she says the racial demographics of the legal profession and how they applied to her was never something she dwelled on. But that changed quickly later on when she got to law school at Tulane and then when she accepted an offer to work for Bass. I didn't really have a lot of visibility into what the firm would be like because they intentionally, I think, had um, Black attorneys on my interview schedule. And so it kind of creates this this sense that, oh, there, there are Black people here and, you know, they're... Um, there isn't an issue there because you don't really know what the numbers are at that point. You just see the people that you're interviewing with. But once she got to the firm, she said she was surprised to see just how few black people were actually there. Just four attorneys spread across multiple offices, which made her feel isolated and awkward. So just trying to navigate um, those social conversations where people are, are referring to things that I, I have no um experience with became exhausting at times. And on top of that, there was the constant pressure to socialize and engage in all of these ways that, as a person of color, 
and an introvert, Young says made it difficult for her to relate and ultimately her success at the firm. I thought I could show up, I could do my work, do a good job, and that would be enough. But no, it's really important um, to show your personality and to share um, your interests. And I just wasn't in that mindset in the first few years. And so I just did not do very well at all. Young says it wasn't that she found the work too much to handle, but because she was falling behind at the cultural aspects, she felt increasing pressure to be someone she wasn't, to tag along on the country music social activities or engage in sports talk or, you know, other things she had no interest or background in. For example, as a summer associate, I remember there was one partner who always took um, a pair of summer associates to breakfast um, and for this breakfast, when I went, um, the partner and the other summer associate who were at the breakfast, they talked for almost the entire breakfast about spelunking. Yeah, as hobbies go, this one is pretty niche, but also really white. So imagine you're that junior associate and you're into spelunking. Well, now you've got this connection with an influential partner who can open doors for you at the firm. I had never heard of the word spelunking in my life. And so as they're talking about, you know, various caves that they've traveled to, I I figured out, oh, this has something to do with caves. And so I could not participate in that conversation. Like, I think maybe I came up with like one question here or there, but I had never been in a cave and I have no interest in exploring caves. And so that was the most awkward breakfast I've ever been to. And that wasn't anything racist necessarily, but arts are. Most Black people do not go spelunking. After several years, Young said one of the few other Black attorneys at the firm quietly pulled her aside and told her what she had sensed all along, that it wasn't going so well for her at the firm and people were noticing, and that she might want to consider starting over somewhere else. But Kanika didn't leave. She stuck it out. And eventually she was finally able to break through at the firm in the way that she'd wanted to all along, through the quality of her work as an attorney. Yeah, the turning point for me at the firm was when I worked on a case for a partner that was pretty notorious for being a hard grader. Um, He was just I think he had gotten the nickname of associate killer. Like once an associate worked for him, they, you know, burned out and and left or just got discouraged or I don't remember exactly, um, you know, what the what the messaging was behind that. But I just remember him having that reputation of just being really tough. And so working on that case with him, I know it was it was really intense. There were very long hours. I remember one month I billed like 240 something hours. It was just crazy. But then um, after that case, I heard from from others that he said great things about my work in a partners meeting. And it just seemed like overnight partners and others were just more friendly to me. 
Many, if not all of the attorneys we spoke with for this podcast spoke about the importance of finding someone early in their career who could be an advocate, typically a partner or someone at their firm who could vouch for their work and put them on projects. Often, although not always, this falls to another partner of color, which, as we've explained, are not that common in big law. So my name is Rakia Renee Pippins. I am currently a partner at Arnold and Porter in the D.C. office. And I guess I would describe myself as a food and drug and consumer protection attorney. I primarily counsel companies that have FDA-regulated products that are sold directly to consumers. Unlike Kanika Young, Pippin said she didn't have to struggle as much to adapt to firm culture. In fact, she says for much of her educational career, including her time at the University of Virginia Law School, she said she'd become used to being one of the few Black faces in the room. I think I was cognizant of it when I was leaving law school, but it didn't by any means deter me from entering the legal field. I think it made me think a lot about how I could be a social engineer in corporate law environment so that um, we had more presence in that environment in addition to those who were on the streets representing um, those who couldn't advocate for themselves. Again, in terms of her early development and eventual success at the firm, Pippin said it all came back to relationships with key people, both inside and outside the firm. For me, it's very important to distinguish mentors from sponsors. I definitely have mentors, both inside the firm and outside of the firm. And I honestly feel like that's a requirement even for you to maintain your sanity in a law firm. And it's interesting. In some ways, I would say the sponsors were both partners at the firms and also in some ways, some really pivotal clients that empowered me by giving me business, you know, at different points in my career. Um, You know, one attorney at Hershey, Lauren Lacey, she was the first person ever to give me work. African-American woman found me on a website and wanted to support Black associates at law firms and hired me for a project. And I feel like it changed my life. Again, thing about big law that we have to remember is that it all comes back to money. What lawyers like to call a rainmaker. That's someone who brings in new clients and bills a ton of hours and makes the firm more profitable. But again, the problem I keep coming back to is the pathway to becoming that rainmaker isn't always on the level. Which, as we said at the beginning of this episode, is where clients come in. Can you hear me? I can. That sounds great. Okay. Uh, First question, Tony, is really straightforward. If you could just tell me who you are and what you do. Sure. I'm Tony West. I'm the chief legal officer at Uber. Before coming to Uber in 2017, West had worked as a litigation partner at Morrison and Forster before serving as an associate attorney general in the Obama administration and then general counsel of PepsiCo. Early in his career, West said he realized that diversity and inclusion was far from being fully embraced by the legal profession, especially when it came to job opportunities for black lawyers. You saw it on on our faculty with the lack of diversity that was on the, the law school faculty. Um, and how that lack of diversity really was a deficit when it came to gaining certain perspectives about the law and how the law impacted real lives, how it impacted communities, how, how law could um, really shape people's destinies. In the coming months, Wes said Uber will roll out the details of a new preferred counsel program at which Uber will rate firms according to their progress on a variety of DNI metrics that go way beyond simple number counting. And that's a key point to make. 
You know, in the past, firms have sometimes been able to skirt the diversity mandate by doing things like bringing in a person of color to do a relatively minor piece of work, and then that gets counted as filling the quota. That's something that I think was actually quite common, but now sounds like general counsel are going to start paying closer attention to. We've got that program, which which we've just put the finishing touches on and and we'll be announcing those firms who over the next 12 to 18 months will be our preferred council partners to whom we will give the lion's share of Uber's legal work. And we will very regularly look at those metrics of those firms because there may be firms that you know do well for a year or two but then fall behind and may be replaced by another firm that's doing exceptionally well on these DNI metrics. not just how are they doing on recruitment of diverse attorneys, but where are those attorneys um, falling within the hierarchy of the firm? Are they making equity partner? Um, are they uh, the, the relationship partner on a number of different matters? Are they a part of the matters that, that this firm represents Uber on? Ricky Chen covers corporate counsel for Bloomberg Law. Hi, Ricky. Thanks for talking to us. Sure, no problem. Ricky, we just heard from Tony West, and earlier in the podcast, we heard an excerpt of an interview you did with Kim Rivera, chief legal officer of HP. So how new would you say this practice is of clients holding firms' feet to the fire on diversity metrics? It really started back in 1999, when a group of about 500 general counsel signed a document called Diversity in the Workplace, a Statement of Principle, where they pledged to distribute more work to outside firms that made commitments to promoting diversity in the workplace. Then in 2004 and 2005, you had companies like Sarah Lee and Walmart instituting their own parameters on law firms. More recently, we've also seen a lot of the tech firms like Microsoft, Facebook, HP, Waymo, and others all rolling out initiatives that are fairly explicit about what criteria firms need to meet. Wow, that's actually a pretty long history, which I guess begs the question of how should we judge their success? Well, that's a really hard question to answer. I mean, as you've pointed out, the statistics for Black representation in big law remain really low. And one reason might be that there are still plenty of firms who look at these mandates and just say, you know what, we've got other clients, we're doing just fine, it's not worth the hassle. On the other hand, I do think there's a growing sense of urgency to get ahead on this issue. And there are some small signs of improvement. A few months ago, I wrote a story about how the percentage of Black general counsel in the Fortune 1000 has increased from 3.8% in 2016 to more than 5% today. In fact, it was also pretty big news last September when an all-Black team of female lawyers brokered a $1.5 billion acquisition of Walden University, a for-profit educator that was purchased by Ed Talam Global Education. And that was a rarity in the legal industry? Definitely. Not just because all the attorneys were Black, but the fact that they were also women kind of speaks to the intentionality that some companies say is really necessary to making a change going forward. So the team was made up of attorneys from a number of name brand firms, including Ackerman, Skadden, Covington. And when you interviewed Shaka Patterson, Ad Talam's general counsel, he said the company was trying to send a signal. And you touched on this a little bit, but can you go into a little bit more detail about why it's so important that you provide these opportunities for diverse attorneys? Sure. Having been a uh, diverse partner, African-American partner uh, at a major law firm. Uh, I understand 
that you know, there are systemic uh, hurdles to you know getting major assignments from uh, large companies. Oftentimes, you hear people say, "Well, I can't do diversity because I can only do major assignments with people that I know well, know their firms well. We've done work with them before." While I understand that thinking, I disagree with it because it perpetuates the status quo. And so even though he hadn't worked directly with some of these women before, Patterson wanted to show that even on really big jobs, it's okay to be deliberate and specific about prioritizing diversity, even when it means relying on an untested relationship. Exactly. And it was also to be an example to other companies to really put their money where their mouth is when it comes to diversity commitments. And on that point specifically, since our story ran, he says he's gotten several calls from other general counsel asking for introductions to the deal team that he used on the Walden deal. Ricky Chen, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks for having me, Adam. If you'd like to follow more of Ricky's reporting on in-house counsel, you can follow her on Twitter at R-U-I-Q-U-I underscore C-H. So, Adam, another question that's pretty central to this discussion is what does doing well on diversity actually look like? I mean, if you're a major global law firm with offices in Hong Kong and New Delhi, do all of these attorneys count towards their DNI metrics? Exactly. And as others have said, how do you actually intervene to make sure those diverse attorneys are getting promoted? Stephen Robinson is a former district judge, currently a partner in the White Collar and Government Enforcement Group at Skadden Arps in New York City. He's also co-chair of the firm's diversity committee. What's happening now is that we're starting to pull open that lid a little bit. And Skadden is really willing to take hard looks at what are the systems and processes and procedures that we have in place that affect the ability of the attorneys that we are able to bring in to progress through eight or 10 years of, a, of being an associate and a counsel to partner. Among other things, Robinson says the firm has worked to create a career sponsorship program that identifies high-performing talent from underrepresented identity groups and then pairs them with a partner sponsor who then follows a very specific set of guidelines. For instance, we ask the partners to do specific acts to enhance their protege's visibility and reputation, both inside the firm and outside the firm. That might be with bar association groups or um, to serve on panels and the like. We ask them to create opportunities for their protege's to work in stretch assignments and, and, and developmental matters. So we have literally two pages of these are the things that it means to be a sponsor. I think the other thing that's important for all of us to do is putting systems in place that don't move away with attitudes so that as this becomes less the hot button issue of the moment, though I think this moment has not burned out yet, um, but if it does move away, that there are systems in place, there are people in positions of authority, um, and people will feel more empowered to speak out, to call it out. To be fair, many of the things Robinson is talking about here are also being widely discussed by other firms as well. 
And despite their efforts, Skadden's also come in for their share of criticism. Earlier this year, none other than civil rights leader Al Sharpton criticized the firm for failing to promote enough black partners, as well as a recent decision to make Juneteenth a firm-wide holiday. A move which Sharpton criticized as, quote, an opportunist stunt by exclusionary corporations to burnish their reputations and give their white associates a three-day weekend, end quote. And it isn't just Sharpton who's withholding judgment on Big Law's newfound religion when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Ellie Mistal from The Nation says we'll see how much corporations prioritize diversity when it comes to the next bet the ranch litigation or when the next economic slump hits. The thing about diversity in Big Law, and this is where I think firms have historically always failed, is that it's not about taking it seriously in the moment. There have been moments before and there will be moments again. It's taking it seriously out of the moment. It's taking it seriously when it's hard to take it seriously. It's taking it seriously when we hit the next recession and the next round of layoffs. And that moment may be coming soon, Ms. Dahl says. If COVID continues to drag on for months or years and firms start to cut back, he worries it will be like the 2008 recession all over again. I was on Above the Law on 2009 and 2010. And I saw all these firms that talked all this big game about diversity when I was coming out of law school in 2003 and 2004. All they were doing were lopping off black and brown heads in 2009 and 2010. Those were the people who were getting fired. Mistal also says he isn't entirely convinced that a lot of managing partners don't secretly view diversity and inclusion as standing in the way of a pure meritocracy. You know, it doesn't really matter what skin color you have, the best lawyers will eventually rise to the top. In reality, Ms. Dahl says this argument remains as flawed today as it was 40 years ago. What we have to understand, though, is how, how do we want to define merit, right? Think about this. Think about it this way. In any big law firm, the very best lawyer is probably not the most important partner. In fact, in many law firms, the best kind of you know, point-and-click lawyers often end up as of counsel doing a lot of, you know, legal grunt work. It is the charismatic lawyers, the ones who can go out and make rain, that end up running the law firm or being the most important kind of power center in the law firm. It is the people with a book of business, and that does not always have a lot to do. That does not necessarily have a high correlation with your legal chops. Even outside the issue of legal chops, Ms. Stahl says there are just so many other biases and hidden traps and walls put up between people of color and developing a book of business. For example, let's say that I was a tax attorney. You think that I can go into, I don't know, Trump Inc. and offer to be their tax attorney? You think I'm going to get that client the same way that maybe a white colleague would? Come on, right? Like the, I have, I have hurdles even to get the business, even if you've done the training to teach me how to get out of the business, all right? So when we talk about meritocracy in terms of book of business, we have to think about all of those issues. Ms. Stahl isn't the only insider to worry about big law's tendency to keep trying the same things and expecting different results. 
You may recall this next voice as Harvard Law School's David Wilkins, who you heard in episode one. Here he is speaking at a recent webinar hosted by the Freshfields Law Firm on the subject of corporate sustainability and social justice. So, you know, we've had chief diversity officers going back to the 1970s. Um, And, you know, they have done lots of things, but they haven't solved the problem. But that's partly because they haven't been given the support that they need in order to do so. That's the new And not unlike the Great Depression was for our grandparents, Wilkins says the structural problems caused by COVID-19 and institutional racism will also shape the worldview of an entire generation. This is what's wrong with the old playbook, is that diversity was a separate thing on the side. So we had our business and then we did diversity on the side. Well, then it's always going to be secondary and it's always going to be possible to put it in opposition to the goals of what we're doing in our main business. But in fact, that's just completely false. That what we need to think about is, it's actually integral to our ability to succeed in the marketplace as it is now and as it will be developing in the future. Here's why I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful Because if you look at all those initiatives you put up on your screen, behind almost every one of them is a senior person of color in a position of authority. It's not enough. We have a long way more to go. But on this dimension of real power and leadership, we are way ahead of where we were before. Why? This is the dividend of 50 years of inclusion and diversity in our elite educational institutions, which primarily produce the leaders in corporate America, the legal profession, and in the rest of society. And some of those amazing women and men are now in positions of authority, and they're basically saying, we are going to use that platform to make sure that this isn't just rhetoric. And that, dear listener, is where we'll leave it today. Megan Tribe covers the business side of the legal industry for Bloomberg Law. Megan, thank you so much for co-piloting the podcast ship with me today. Sure, I was happy to do it. You can track Megan's reporting and follow her on Twitter at TribeMegan. That's M-E-G-H-A-N. Please check in with us next week when we set our sights on the high-stakes world of law school and the role they play in shaping the diversity of the legal industry. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Megan Tribe, Bricky Chin, Marissa Horn, Lisa Hellam, and Ayana Alexander. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Additional editing came from Rebecca Mincer. Until next week, thanks for listening. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, water pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species, renewable energy, superfund, asbestos, recycling, lead, mold, radon, stormwater... That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join me, David Schultz, on the Parts Per Billion podcast every Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts, and thanks for listening.